Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. Before we get started, I wanted to draw your attention to a book from Douglas Wilson, Empires of Dirt, Secularism, Radical Islam, and the Mere Christendom Alternative. American exceptionalism, the belief that America is more than a nation, is folly. Radical Islam is obviously wrong as well, but Muslims at least own the nature of the current cultural conflict. You must follow somebody, whether it's Allah, the state, or Jesus Christ. This important and timely book is an analysis of the changing face of religion and politics and also an extended argument for Christian expression of faith in Jesus Christ. This does not mean a withdrawal from politics to our own communities and churches. Instead, we Christians must take what we have learned from the wreck of secularism and build a new Christendom of the new foundation, a network of nations bound together by a formal, public, civic acknowledgement of the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the fundamental truth of the Apostles' Creed. Given the political circus that we find ourselves in, this book is a breath of fresh air. Get it at canonpress.com. So welcome to the Plodcast. This is episode 142, episode 142, the Plodcast. So I want to talk a little bit about what I think is the developing or unfolding play against Trump. Um, and what I'm doing here is I'm not, uh, I'm not a cheerleader on the sidelines, anybody's sidelines with pom-poms, or I'm just uh, functioning here as an observer what I think is going on, what play I think is being uh, run. It should also be said, and I think I've said it on the podcast before, that I don't believe that this was a master plan unhatched in a secret hideaway somewhere by the Illuminati. I don't, I don't believe that conspiracies run, the, uh, run history or control all events like that. I don't think there was any master plan that said unleash the virus. But I do believe that the, uh, the left, the progressive left, has been discombobulated in a significant way by the activities of Trump. Now, so has the right. So is the traditional conservative right. Uh, the traditional conservative principled uh, right wing is also in a state of dishevelment uh, because of Trump. He's messed their hair up. But he's done far more messing up of the progressives' plan than he has of the uh, conservatives' plan. And that's because the progressives actually had a plan that they were implementing and the conservatives had no plan to speak of other than to lose slowly. So um, Trump is upsetting everybody, right? And he is vulgar and crude and brash and all of that. So there are people who don't like him on a personal level. There are people who can't handle him on a personal level. There are people who are against what he's up to principally, and they will do anything to make sure that he um, doesn't get elected again. Going into the election in the fall, prior to this COVID business, the single strongest selling point for Donald Trump was the economy. The reason Watergate took Nixon out was because of the condition of the economy at the time. 
had Nixon been perched atop a robust, roaring economy, he would have been able to weather or muscle his way through uh, something like Watergate. He was not able to because basically when your supporter rode, you know, as, as is famously said, it's the economy stupid. Trump going into the election had just had a really, um, had the wind at his back, had a really strong economy, right? And about 10 minutes into this uh, uh, COVID business, what started out as a panic became an opportunity and became uh, one of those moments where you never let a crisis go to waste. So uh, initially the lockdown was to flatten the curve, and then uh, people are talking about a lockdown until there's a vaccine. And then some people want uh, a lockdown until there's three vaccines. And some people are talking about a lockdown for maybe a year. Maybe churches in Illinois can't come back for a year. Uh, L.A. is apparently going to be locked down through the summer. Or that's the plan anyway. I think things are going to, I think some springs are going to start coming, popping out of the couch here uh, pretty quickly. I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. But we're going to go into lockdown until we flatten the curve. Uh, we're going to lockdown until we have a vaccine. We're going to go into lockdown until we have three vaccines. We're going to go into lockdown, I think the thinking is, until Biden is elected. So basically, what I think the current plan is, the only way that the current dogged commitment to lockdowns makes any kind of sense at all is that they're not trying to fix or wreck the economy. They're trying to, they're trying to damage the economy. To such, an point that, uh, to such a point that they can wrap it around Trump's neck in the election and successfully get people to believe that he is to blame uh, for what happened. So basically, this is a kamikaze mission, I think. Um, every day that passes makes it plainer that uh, Joe Biden is not ready for the big leagues. He's not, he's not up to this. He's very obviously lost his grip. And he's not, he's not going to be able to do this. And I, and I think that basically we are looking at an um, all-hands-on-deck play being run against Trump to make everything as bad as we possibly can in the area where he was supposed to be strongest and, and then blame it on him. So everything in the coming election is going to hinge on whether people buy that narrative. We're going to see if people say, yeah, yeah, Trump should have uh, done a better job with the virus, and he shouldn't have done all that damage to the economy. Well, we'll see. People are fond of saying that the next election is the most momentous election in our lifetimes. Um, but, you know, I think this next one really might be that. Um, and I'm not talking about uh, Trump as the conservative's golden boy. I'm just simply saying that there are things going on that have never gone on before. And we've not seen this level of hostility. We've not seen this level of diehard commitment to making, we'll, we will burn the whole thing down rather than let that man get elected again. Um, if he does get elected again, I think that we are going to see some serious uh, civil unrest. I think it's fair to say that America has not been this divided since right before the Civil War. And um, and so we'll see what happens. That's my opinion, and I'm sticking to it. So, podcast episode 142, Hamartiology. Uh, we're studying sin and various um, 
words for sin in the New Testament or things related to sin. Our word this time around is atimia, timia, and it means shame or reproach or dishonor. The New Testament uses the word in two ways, one to refer to that which is vile, and secondly to that which is treated as though it were vile. So let's begin with the former, which is easier to see. So in Romans 1.26, we have the word used, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. So in the context of Paul's argument, when a man's sexual desire turns towards other men, or when a woman's sexual desire turns towards other women, the Bible describes that as vile. Atimia. In the New Testament, to abandon normal sexual intercourse for same-sex pursuits has something inherently shameful about it. Our contemporary and rebellious attempts to make it a matter of pride only heightens the problem. The Bible says that this is shameful, this is vile, and we have Pride Month or Pride Parades. And that's what I would describe as uh, a chasm or a gulf between those two different views. Homosexual acts fall into this category, but so does effeminacy. In 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen, it says, Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. There's our, our, our word, atimia. It is a shame, atimia. So, for a man to wear long, effeminate hair is to behave in a shameful way. All right? Now, because of our first parents fall into sin, we are born into a race that is represented by them well. Our condition is fallen, broken, dishonored. And so when God chooses some for a holy purpose, the others are left behind. Romans 9.21 Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? There, unto dishonor, there's our word, atimia. So God is choosing from the clay. Uh, one. He's going to make one vessel for honor and another vessel for dishonor. Same sort of thing in 2 Timothy 2.20. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Otimia. But God has a larger, higher purpose for these broken bodies of ours. He wants them to go into the ground. So, our bodies are sown in dishonor. There it is. Our bodies are sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power, 1 Corinthians 15, 43. So, um, there, uh, the dishonor does not have to do with a person living in an overtly sinful way, but it does have to do with the fact that he belongs to a fallen, sinful race. Our bodies die, Paul says, because of sin. Our bodies decay because of sin. The remaining two uses are flipped around in a sense. Instead of referring to things that are objectively vile, the Apostle also uses the word to describe things that ought to be honored, but because of the sinfulness of the world, are dishonored. So, there are things that the world pursues, the world honors, and we dishonor, and there are things that the world dishonors and we honor. So, 2 Corinthians 6, 8, By honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true. Paul's talking here about the reputation that he has with outsiders, uh, with people um, who are viewing his ministry, and th there are people who uh, heap contempt on it. Same sort of thing in 2 Corinthians 11.21. I speak as concerning reproach, a Timmy out there, as concerning reproach, 
as though we had been weak. Howbeit, whereinsoever any is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. The book I want to review this episode is Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham Machen. Machen wrote this book about a century ago, which is kind of odd uh, to think about. Basically, the, the encroachments of higher criticism and theological liberalism had taken root in Europe. And in the um, newly rich United States, a number of young men would complete their college degrees here, and then they'd go over to Europe to get their doctorate in order to uh, be an educated minister, and they'd come back and they'd preach in the churches. Well, they would pick up the cooties of, um, the cooties of compromise over in Europe, uh, and so liberalism uh, started making inroads into the largely evangelical mainstream denominations, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Episcopalians. Um, and so the liberalism started to occupy places on mission boards and in uh, denominational headquarters and in seminaries and so on. And uh, J. Gresham Machen wrote this book to outline his objections to liberalism, and he is attacking liberalism not as a deficient form of Christianity or a form of Christianity that has some problems that need to be uh, corrected. He, he attacks liberalism as another religion altogether. Okay, so Machen is a staunch Protestant, thoroughly Reformed theologian. He has some kind words to say about the Roman Catholic Church as a deficient Christian church. So he, he says our Roman Catholic brothers are, in fact, um, they confess Christ, they worship the triune God, but the, the liberals, for Machen, the liberals in his own denomination were like the ancient Gnostics. They represented another faith entirely. And uh, uh, so he didn't have any, he didn't have much use for the revivalists um, and, and for Roman Catholics in, in terms that they didn't represent what he was up to at all. But he was astute enough to see that those were disagreements among people who were worshiping the same God, naming the same Christ. But liberalism, it wasn't that way at all. The thing that struck me, so I read this book, Christianity and Liberalism, many years ago, probably well, 30 years or so, um, maybe even more. I read this book many years ago and just recently went through it again. And I was struck at how perennially fresh everything in it was. Um, basically, what uh, Machen, a lot of water has gone under the bridge in evangelical circles since Machen wrote. Evangelicals were squeezed out of the mainline denominations. The mainline denominations started to die. Um, evangelicals were sort of forced into the hills, and they built their own separate infrastructure. And then in the 70s, evangelicalism came back into the public square. Evangelical churches are, are, have been the churches that are growing, and mainline, the mainline churches are dying on the vine. But all the same issues, all the same sorts of foolishness that they were dealing with in the main lines in the early part of the 20th century, we're dealing with again 
with postmodern relativism and all the... The devil doesn't come up with new lies, largely because he doesn't have to. Um, this book, Christianity and Liberalism, is a bracing statement of the gospel and what it is that we must affirm about the gospel if we want to remain faithful Christians. It's, um, if you're in the thick of it today, it's, uh, it will be quite a bracing um, exercise for you to read through Christianity and liberalism and ask yourself, what has changed exactly? Uh, not very much. Mm-hmm.